Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. And here's our text. This is what we're going to be working with. Watchmen, how far gone is the night? How much longer is the exile? And if we if we understand that exile is removal from the promised land, then in our generation, we have a glimmer of hope that going back a couple thousand years, well, not quite 2,000 years, but going back almost 2,000 years, people didn't have the same hope that we do because they have not seen Israelites, Jews specifically, resettled in their own land. And so if you see Jews going back and being resettled in their own land, that tells you there's a lot of people coming behind them. And at the divinely appointed time, they will go. But that tells you that there is some light on the horizon in terms of an exile. And will there be another exile after that? We don't really know. We're not given the the answer. But the pattern we're going to see today is it's, it's suggested that there's really two that prophets like Isaiah are working with. There's going to be the Babylonian exile. And then, of course, the Jews are released to go back and rebuild their temple. And then there's going to be another one after that. And that's going to be the current one. And so where the first one was Babylonian, the last one is also going to be Babylonian. But uh, the, the particular beast empire is going to be Rome or Edom, right? The red beast How can it be two things? How can it be Babylon and the red beast? Well, the same reason you're seeing both of them in Revelation. You're going to see Babylon the great has fallen, fallen, two exiles, two exiles will fall and release the the Israelites. Uh, But you're also going to see the red beast because remember, they're one man from the golden head to the iron legs and the clay and iron feet. They're all one man is the image of the beast, no matter which of the beast kingdoms you're looking at. And that's, that's a key to kind of decoding that, right? So our twilight is the question, how much longer will the night last for us? And the Torah portion this week is Shalach Lecha, which means sin for yourself. And of course, we know if we read the text this week that uh, 12 spies, 12 investigators were sent out to make an assessment of the promised land. And there's a hint in the, the title, Sin for Yourself. It's not that the Holy One really needed them to go look and scout it out. He already knew what it looked like. But the idea, sin for yourself, this is to satisfy yourselves. This is going to serve no divine purpose. You're doing this on your own. And of course, we saw how that turned out. The, the statistics aren't great on that one. At any rate, as we go through that, text, especially as we go through Numbers chapter 15. We get the story, of course, of the spies, and we see that only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, those are going to be the two who have a different spirit in them. They see the value in the land. They don't see the the Canaanites. They don't see the systems that are already in place in the land as being an obstacle. In fact, you know, I think it's Caleb. He says something interesting. He says, we don't need to fear them. They're going to be food for us. They're going to be bread for us. It goes back to, again, the food has always been the issue. They just had an issue with the food, with the manna, and now they have an issue with the Canaanites. And Joshua and Caleb are assuring them, it's not a problem. They're going to be food. You know what? The houses they built, we're going to move into. 
the food they've put away, the food they've harvested, we're going to eat it. They're going to be food for us. There's nothing to fear here. All these huge systems that seem insurmountable to us in our time of exile, as we look into the promised land and we say, there's no way past this. The problems, the obstacles are huge. And if Joshua and Caleb were here, they would tell us, hey, what you're seeing is an obstacle. That's going to be food for you. You're going to be able to benefit from that. They're, they're building stuff that you're going to benefit from. All right. It's just a matter of the Holy Spirit going before us and, and moving those things out of the way in its proper time. All we have to do is wait on him and we'll be able to walk into our inheritance. But Joshua and Caleb, they did something very significant. Even though they wouldn't be back for almost 40 years, they went the length and the breadth of the land and they bring back a good report. Don't sit around. If you have the means to go to the land, don't sit around and wait for a cloud to take you, you know, for King Messiah to sit on the cloud with you and say, hey, free ride to Jerusalem. Don't wait for that. If you have the means to go, it's a mitzvah to go. Go. Put your feet on the land. Go the length and the breadth of the land if you can. And even if you have to leave, that is your statement of faith. That is your, your different spirit. Like Joshua and Caleb, this is, hey, it's possible. I'm going to scout it out and I'm going to come back. I'm going to bring a good report. I'm going to, not going to tell you about all the Canaanites I saw. I'm not going to tell you about all the internal problems I saw. I'm not going to tell you any of that. I'm going to tell you the things that we saw are for our benefit if we'll let the Holy Spirit go before us. And that's that's kind of the, the essence when you're in exile, you never quit looking toward the land. Because if you quit looking toward the land, you'll completely assimilate and see yourself as something apart from when that's when you're that's where your inheritance is. Whatever systems you see as insurmountable, that's food for you. All right, you're gonna feed off of that. So let's just do a quick review here of the beast kingdoms. And again, this is not meant to be an introductory lesson. This is to be taking the lessons, the leftovers of the lessons you already have and making it into a new meal, all right? So if you don't know these 4.5 beast kingdoms in their proper order and why they look like a man and why they also look like beasts, then just keep backing up through the, the playlist until you find, I think it's, I don't remember the title of it, but I think it's, you know, it's a, a brief history of the beast so that you can trace the history of the beast from Egypt, which is the serpent or the crocodile kingdom, how that authority and that power is passed off to the king of Babylon, which is the golden head of the beast, and then passed down through successive kingdoms all the way to Rome and is now embedded within the daughter systems of Rome around the world and the nations. Okay, so we're not going to go through that again, but we will just scan through here. Remember, you've got the lion is Babylon. You've got the Persian bear paws of the Medo-Persians. It's got a lot of strength there. You've got the leopard spot of Greece and the body of the beast that Daniel and John see. It has a leopard's body to it. And we're going to take another look. We're going to review that. Why does the leopard have spots and why is that the body of the beast? We know that the beast was a man. And again, we're depending upon Daniel to explain these things to us. We know that Nebuchadnezzar made an image of himself all in gold. He thought if he made it all in gold, then he could circumvent Daniel's interpretation of his dream and say that instead of his kingdom ending and then turning into silver, Medo-Persia, turning into bronze, which is going to be Greece, turning into iron, which is Rome, to circumvent that, he makes the image all in gold. He believes that if he can get 
representatives from the nations to come bow before that golden image, then of course his kingdom will never end, but it did. So there was an end to his kingdom. And then later Daniel sees these separate kingdoms, not in the body of the human being, but he sees them as, as creatures. But as we look at Daniel's vision, we see that the fourth creature, it's, it's not a lion, it's not a bear, it's not a leopard, it's a conglomerate because it represents the kingdoms that went before it. It's taken on the characteristics of the, the three kingdoms before it. And of course, we know that final kingdom there was Rome the iron legs. The body of this conglomerate beast, though, of Rome, it was that of a leopard. And we know that Greece was the leopard kingdom. And the unique way in which they corrupted the covenant people didn't really have to do with sending them into exile. They didn't do that. Instead, they simply infiltrated Judea with practices and systems they, they kind of camouflaged themselves, and they hunted in that way. They didn't send Israel out. They came in. And so these spots represent the, the systems that they implanted within the people groups they wanted to dominate. And then Rome comes along after the Greeks, and all they do is they, they take on the spots. They, they just take those same systems. They took the Greek gods. They've got Roman names now, Latin names. They took Greek literature, they took Greek medicine, they took Greek philosophy, Greek education, Greek government, Greek sports, military tactics, you name it. They took it and then they just incorporated into theirs, into their empire. And that's what the Romans did. They would incorporate the gods of conquered nations into their systems. But see, if you're incorporating everything, then you simply become full of spots, right? And so if you've got these Greek systems, and if you're Rome and you're, you're perfecting these systems, then taking the system, the, the essence of the system will not change. You can take those individual systems, and then no matter, even after the Roman Empire is destroyed, is conquered, the peoples will pick up those same systems and incorporate them into those nations. And so in any nation you go to, what do they have? They have the literature, they have the medicine, they have the philosophy, they have the education, they have the government, they have the sports, they have the military's tactics. And so these are methods with which you can both hunt and dominate nations. And this is what Rome took from Greece. It's a great system if you want to dominate diverse peoples. How do you incorporate them and get them all on the same page? How do you get nations around the world to do the same thing on the same day. Okay, let's pick a system back here. We can use medicine and we can use education and we can use government and we can convince the entire world we need to shut down for a while. All it takes is a little virus, right? So you can use different recipes, different systems uh, that we inherited from the beast in order to control great numbers of people. Now, this does not mean that every system in the world is wrong, it's wicked, that it's evil. Some Certain organizations and systems are there for the good. You just have to discern at what point is it contrary to the word of God. Just like the, the tent of meeting, that was a place where people gathered. It was an organized system, highly organized system. I mean, down to the drops of blood organized system, but it was for the good. 
It wasn't to simply dominate and control people for the sake of wickedness. So you have to look what is really behind this system. You have to peel away the layers. And uh, this is what we learned about the leopard. It comes from Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you as well can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. What does that mean? Well, an Ethiopian doesn't try to change his skin. He is who he is. He's just being honest. This is who I am. Why change it? But he also says, can the leopard change his spots? Of course he can. A leopard is born with spots. That's the way he's created. So he's being completely honest as to who he is when he displays his spots. So he says to covenant people, you know what? You're covenant people. That's who you are. So why in the world... Are you trying to play like you're an evil person? Why in the world are you trying to pretend to be wicked? He's, he's trying to inspire them to act according to their covenant nature, a covenant heart, uh, to be authentic, to be true to who they are, rather than taking on the systems within which they operate and have to operate. Because remember, like Babylon the Great, you, you have to come out of her. Well, you can't come out of her in terms of you can't come out of the world. But can you come out of her sin? Absolutely. You can come out of her sin because it's not you. And so when you do evil, that's the question. An Ethiopian's not going to try to change his skin. A leper's not going to try to change his spots. Then why are you trying to act evil? The idea is the spots are joined together with the coat. They're inseparable. They're, They're one thing. For the leper, though, they're a perfect camouflage because the, the spots, chavar barot, uh, that comes from an interesting root word, which is chavar. It means to join up, to fascinate, to charm. And so the systems of the leopard, the systems of Rome, the systems of the beast, they will first catch your eye by fascinating you. It's something you want. Remember the food from the garden? Hmm, that fruit looks fascinating. You know what? This manna doesn't look so good, but some quail, that would be fascinating. It's charming. It appeals to you. It's what you already want. It can mean to have fellowship with, to join together, to be part of a league, right? Most of us have, you know, maybe a sports t-shirt, our favorite team. We joined up, right? It doesn't mean we're literally on the team, but we joined the the organization, the the fan club, the, the supporters for this particular team. Now, that can be innocuous. In other words, that can be harmless unless what if you're joining into the support for this team We'll just use sports. We'll pick on sports today. What if you're such a fan of sports that it would cause you to violate the Shabbat? Yikes. Now, all of a sudden, we see how the leopard works. It offers us a system. It fascinates us. It charms us in. It promises a lot of things, fun, friends, family, maybe scholarships, pay raises, who knows? Feeling like a winner, you know, if, you, if you're a fan of a winning team, you're going to have way better days than those of us who are fans of losing teams. But it offers you some happy times uh, of the soul, not necessarily the spirit, but it will, it will charm your soul. So this is what the leopard's going to offer, something that will charm us away from the Torah. And uh, you can see here um, that these spots... It, uh, it comes from the root, which means to unite, to be joined, or to tie magic charms, to make an ally of, to be united with. And so this is how 
Rome learned from Greece, except Rome is iron. It's stronger than the bronze of Greece. So now uh, Rome had the, the ability to put the teeth into the promises behind its daughter systems that, that sprouted out of Rome. When Rome was destroyed, all it did was scatter. It just scattered all those systems out there into the world. And I would say we see it primarily in governments, but it'll use any of those systems we named to charm people of faith into them and so that they will assimilate. And this was the problem with Greece. They, they charmed from within Judea. You can see in the Gospels that the disciples were concerned about the Greek Jews that were coming to town. Why? Because they had taken on the philosophy of the Greeks, the education of the Greeks, and so forth. And so in the time of the Maccabees, the, the Jews who had been Hellenized or become very Greek had kind of been sucked into the leopard spots. They were the bigger danger than Greece itself. It was a rottenness from within. So if they can't fascinate and charm you into the group that they're going to use to lead you away from the word, from the, the perfect manna of heaven, then they'll coerce you. And uh, they might use the force of law. And if you still won't buckle down, they'll try to destroy you. It's, it's a three-step program. The thing to remember about these beast kingdoms is it's a human. It repre represents a human mind. All right. So we're going to look at um, Isaiah chapter 21. It's a good idea to read the whole chapter, but we're going to pick some things out. And first of all, because our Torah portion takes place in the wilderness, we're interested if, if there are two exiles, the Babylonian exile and the Roman exile, which we're still in, we might be in a twilight, it might be lifting, the dawn might be breaking, but we're not completely out yet because the 12 tribes are not resettled in their territory, they're not at peace. So the, the prophecy here was there's going to be a wilderness of the peoples, a wilderness of the sea, which represents the nations. And so in this passage from Isaiah 21, 1 through 4, we see Isaiah prophesying concerning the wilderness of the sea. This interests us because we find ourselves in a wilderness of the sea, a wilderness among the nations. And he's seeing some pretty horrible, terrible things here. He's experiencing some pretty horrible, terrible things here. And this is why everybody's so scared of the tribulation and the birth pangs of Messiah. Because even Isaiah, he says, pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I'm so bewildered, I cannot hear, so terrified, I cannot see. My mind reels, horror overwhelms me. He says, the twilight I longed for has been turned into trembling for me. So the end of a twilight or the end of an exile at the twilight, that can be a terrifying time. It can be even more terrifying than being in the middle of the night because things are changing, right? Things that had been concealed in the darkness of the night, now the as the the sun rises, we can begin to see some of these things. We can see some of the activity that we've been battling against. It becomes, it, it knows the time is short. It understands the time is short because there's certain guideposts we look for to know that the end of the exile is near, that the twilight has come. And when the adversary sees that the twilight has come, he will know that his time is short and his pursuit will become much more angry and much more vicious. So let's look at this. Revelation 13, 1 through 6, it says the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, which is the nations. But the sand of the seashore, remember, is also another way of saying the children of Abraham. Your children will be as numerous as the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having 10 horns and seven heads. And on his horn were 10 crowns. And on his heads were blasphemous names. 
And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Remember, this final beast has a leopard body because he's going, to, the, the body of what he does, the, the mainframe, so to speak, of what the final beast is doing among the nations is he's maintaining the leopard spots. He's maintaining all those systems, you know, pulling all the levers and, and flipping the switches and so forth of those systems to try to get all the world on board with him. And his feet were like those of a bear. He's very strong. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. He's arrogant. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And so the lion was the first beast kingdom, the golden head of Babylon. That was the first beast kingdom. And the dragon, which was a pharaoh, pharaoh Neko, he left the Nile. Once he left the water, he was weakened. What do you see here? The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. When you see the dragon or any animal come up out of a river, come up out of the ocean, come up out of a body of water, they might look fearsome, but prophetically what that means is their their strength will not last long. They will quickly weaken and die just like any other water creature that comes up on land, right? And, and that makes sense because in Revelation, we're seeing the pretty much the final enactment of the prophecies. And so the dragon gave him his power, throne, great authority. Well, now that we see the dragon coming out the sand of the seashore, he, yes, there will be great power thrown in great authority, but it will quickly go away. It will quickly die. The last king in scripture of Babylon was King Belshazzar. King Belshazzar was the king who saw the writing on the wall. And once Daniel came in and interpreted the writing on the wall, that's when the king of Babylon realized this is the last night of the kingdom of Babylon. Tonight's the night. And he was throwing this great feast, if you'll remember, when he sees the writing on the wall. He's throwing this great feast, uh, they believe, because he had just achieved uh, a military battle uh, victory. And they believe that it took place the day after Pesach. And they believe that he was familiar with the, the prophecies concerning the Jews and that there were 70 years of exile assigned to them. And then they would be re released to go back and build the holy temple. Well, they say King Belshazzar knew this. And so the date passes. And at a time when the Jews should have just been offering the Passover lambs in their temple, getting ready to offer the, the Omer of the barley offering, he's saying pretty much, he, he's thumbing his nose at the Holy One and the Jews and says, oh, look, the God of the Jews is helpless. He doesn't do what he promises. He's not coming right? He's not coming to rescue you. He's not going to turn you loose. You're still under my power. See, I just had this great military victory. And so he pulls out all the holy vessels of the temple and he starts handing them around to his concubines and his wives and his friends saying, drink out of this. Let's drink out of the holy vessels of the Jews, God. And this was a blasphemy. This was a blatant blasphemy. So you get the, the, the heads with the blasphemous names. And what happened that night? was that they say that, that two of his guards picked up the candlestick. Uh, he even brought out a lamp, which they believe was the, the holy menorah, to light the feast, this pagan feast, and to pretty much taunt the God of Israel by bringing out the holy vessels. And so they say, after Daniel interprets the dream, this is the last night, King Belshazzar, this is the writing on the wall, your kingdom's about to be handed off to the Medes and the Persians. Uh, it'll, your kingdom will be divided. That's what the writing on the wall says. You've been counted, numbered, weighed, and your kingdom is about to be divided to the Medes and the Persians. 
And so that night they say his guards hit him over the head with candlestick <laughs> and it wasn't Colonel Mustard in the library, <laughs> but they, they gave him a fatal head wound, but he didn't die immediately that he lingered. There's debate about how long he actually lingered, but uh, they say he convulsed through the night, finally dies and um, he's gone. That's the end of Babylon. Well, in Revelation, we get the idea that Babylon has somehow been resurrected. Well, it never really died. It, it was simply absorbed by the Medes and the Persians. And then it was absorbed by Greece. And then it was absorbed by Rome. So the remnants of the Roman Empire that we have today within our systems also contain that, that golden head of Babylon. And so it's going to look apparently at the end of this last exile as though that golden head, it wasn't a fatal wound. It's still here. And this is what John says. He says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been fatally wounded and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who's able to wage war with him? Remember King Belshazzar, it was thought that he was also celebrating a military victory in, in this, this blasphemous feast that he threw. A mouth was given to him speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Right? So there's a lot of parallels there to the last king of Babylon, to King Belshazzar, and that final feast that he threw that is recorded in chapter five of Daniel. Right? It, it certainly, if if you know what's taught about that particular chapter of Daniel then this really seems like uh, uh, something very similar, all right, Th that the end of that exile is in some way going to be a guidepost to the end of the current exile. Here's what we're looking at. It says they blasphemed his name and his tabernacle. The Greek there for tabernacle is skene, and that's, that's uh, translated in Hebrew with different Hebrew words. One of them is ohel, which is tent, we get Ohel Moed, which means tent of meeting, the Mishkan, which is the tabernacle, the, the place of the indwelling presence, which is, you've heard it referred to as the Shekhinah, and in the Sukkah. You know what a Sukkah is, right? During the Feast of Sukkot. So not only is this king of Babylon, this golden head, appear to be resurrected, he, the deceit is we're going to think based on his power, and based on what appears to be life in him, that he actually is alive. He's going to deceive many, but he's treacherous, right? And so you can just, once he opens his mouth in the blasphemies, you know this is not a resurrected king of Babylon. This is nobody to follow after and be amazed at because he's just perpetuating the original sins of Babylon, the arrogance. And so not only is he blaspheming God, he's blaspheming his tabernacle. And then it clarifies, it says, those who dwell in heaven, right? So those who dwell in heaven, an equivalent expression for them is the tent of meeting. We could also be called the Mishkan, the tabernacle. We could also be called the Sukkah. Because remember, not only are we protected in the Sukkah, not only are we protected in the Mishkan, we are the Mishkan. We are the little tabernacles. It's called the tabernacle of this body. So we are the Mishkan, but we're protected by the divine Mishkan, because of his indwelling presence there. So if we dwell in the presence of Adonai, then even in the wilderness, of course, the beast is going to speak blasphemies against us. 
And if that scares you, you need to get farther up under the sukkah. (laughs) And that's the thing we need to remember. Is he going to blaspheme us? Yes. Do you need to run out there and talk to him? No, you don't. Just imagine, I mean, if you have an audience with the presence of the Holy One, you're, you're there in the presence of the King of Kings, even in the wilderness, and you're hearing the blasphemies of the beast, why would you leave the presence of the throne? Remember, there's a mercy seat in the Mishkan. Why would you leave the presence of the Holy One and run out there to have a dialogue with the beast? Think about how rude that is. So let's look at Song of Songs 3.6. This is considered a prophecy of Israel coming up out of the wilderness. And remember, the Mishkan language, the tabernacle language, the setting of that is the wilderness. It was only a temporary thing in the wilderness. We're in a preparation stage. Egypt's behind us. The promised land is before us. Therefore, we don't want to make mistakes in the wilderness. We're in the wilderness of the peoples, but we are going to come up from that wilderness of the peoples because we are the Mishkan and we're under the Mishkan. We're going to be blasphemed, but within the Mishkan, within the presence of Adonai, here's the question. Who is this coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the scented powders of the merchant. It's Israel coming up from the wilderness. It was Israel who came up. Ten spies says, we'll never make it in. Two said, look, we're in the Mishkan. We're in the smoke. We're in the clouds of glory. We're in Sukkot of glory. Why in the world would you think that we can't go up into the inheritance? We have the columns of smoke from the sacrificial altar. We have the columns of smoke from the incense altar. We have the the frankincense that goes on the, the sacrifices. We have all these scented powders. We have the 12 tribes with us. Why would we not be able to go into our inheritance if we have faith? Again, do you want to run out there and have a conversation with the beast about whether it is or isn't possible? No, you don't. Stay in the Mishkan. Stay with people who believe the same way you do. Stay with the people who have the same faith you do. Because when you're around people of like kind and like mind, you'll do better, you'll act better, you'll get better fruit. Right. So this might be some sort of interim arrangement. If this were the generation where Israel begins to come up out of the wilderness and to stand there at the Jordan ready to go into the promised land, then we have to see these tests. You know, we shouldn't quarrel over the water of the word. We shouldn't be quarreling over the perfect food, which is manna. The thing we can say about the Israelites is they just didn't seem to be aware of where they were. They were in the wilderness. They were in the clouds with the Mishkan, and yet they're complaining and carrying on. The print's not big big enough, you know, uh, It costs too much. It takes too long to gather it up. You know, there's all sorts of things we find to complain about. And you think, really, is this when you want to complain? He's brought you out into the wilderness. He's brought you to the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting. He's brought you to the appointed times in the Sabbath. And now you start complaining? That was for when you were back in Egypt. Complain about Egyptians in Egypt. You get into the wilderness, it's basically appreciate the perfect food. And just take one day at a time, one step at a time. That's all you can ask for in the wilderness. You're not permitted to ask for more in the wilderness. Daily bread. 
what I gather today, and you learn to trust him in that way. And quit trying to bake, boil, and grind everything in your own image. And so um, you have to mix faith with this perfect bread that he's given you in the wilderness. And so am I glad I'm in an interim state? You betcha, because I still complain sometimes. I still uh, quarrel sometimes, <laughs> maybe not out loud, but definitely inside I'm quarreling with people. Uh, and that's about the bread. That doesn't even have anything to do with what's outside here, but I'm learning to worry less about what's going on outside the cloud and start working on the perfection of inside the cloud, of being satisfied with my daily bread. Because remember, aliyah means to go up. And this is what happens in the wilderness. You go up. This is what it says. Who is this coming up from the wilderness? You go up to the promised land. So what are you supposed to do in the wilderness? You learn, you strengthen yourself so that you can go up and to the land. But what could also happen is it also means removal from. So you can prepare and strengthen yourself to go up and take your inheritance, or you can be removed at that point because there's a strong, more than a strong suggestion in the book of Revelation that a lot of the lukewarm are going to be removed and, and they're just going to have to deal with being outside the holy city. And what happens there, they're not going to be able to go through the gates because they were lukewarm. The wilderness is the place he brings us to strengthen us. The Torah is from the wilderness. The Mishkan is from the wilderness. The court is from the wilderness. The priesthood is from the wilderness. Levitical divisions are from the wilderness. The monarchy is from the wilderness. Remember, you're called a kingdom of priests in the wilderness. There is a throne set up in the Mishkan. It's called the mercy seat. We're prepared for a king in the wilderness. The goodly gifts are from the wilderness. The well of water, the miraculous well of water, the manna, the perfect bread, the clouds of glory that surround us and protect us, the divine presence. And even crowns are from the wilderness when we say we will do and we will hear. If we sin with the golden calf, he takes the crowns away. And if we keep sinning, he takes us away. We are removed from the wilderness. Prophecy is from the wilderness. So there are good things in the wilderness. We can't complain in the wilderness because he's using this combination of good things in the wilderness to encourage us, to strengthen us, and to prepare us to cross over the Jordan and enter into our inheritance. But you can see how vital the manna would be in accepting the perfect food, because that's something you have to do daily. And so he puts all his systems in place. We have every system we need to lean on right here in the wilderness. We don't have to lean upon and put all our faith in the systems of the beast. So we don't want to be removed from the wilderness. We want to go up from the wilderness, because if we're removed from the wilderness, we're just going to die in our unbelief, right? Doesn't it matter? I'm not having a salvation conversation here. I'm talking about being able to enter the holy city in order to become part of that government and administration of King Messiah Yeshua. Right? So this is the verse that we're working with. What or who is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the scented powders of the merchant? It's Israel. She's coming up from the wilderness. 
And so we're not going to go up with a bad report about the land. We're going to go up with expectation that if we carry our faith over the Jordan, that everything within the promised land that is scary to us, that looks too strong for us, that looks too established. And they even said the towers are up in the heavens. Doesn't matter. You know what? The powers of heaven are going to be shaken. And anything that has extended into places of arrogance and blasphemy that don't need to be there, they're just going to crumble. They're going to crumble in front of us. So we don't need to spend our time giving evil reports of it. We just need to spend our time preparing for the day when it crumbles and we go up. And so what about those scented powders? I know I alluded to the different columns of smoke, such as the the altar of incense, the the sacrifices on the altar. And of course, you've got myrrh and frankincense that go on certain sacrifices or incense offerings. Uh, The frankincense would go on particular uh, sacrifices. So you, you get those columns of smoke. But what about these scented powders? Well, the powder is the avocado of the merchant. And the scented powders, it, it kind of means dust. And they say this goes back to Genesis 32, 24, and 25, because when Jacob had a wrestling match all night, remember, he's trying to bring his sons into the promised land, into the land of their inheritance, and he has to wrestle all night first. Different ideas about who he wrestled with. Some say it was Yeshua. Some people, I don't know, they have all sorts of ideas. There's a rabbinic tradition that he was wrestling with Esau's angel, the accuser, the the prosecutor. Esau's angel was his prosecutor up to this point because he had deceived his way into Esau's blessing. And so he had to have this wrestling match. And because he prevailed in this wrestling match, they say, um, and wrestling, of course, is avak, that it created so to speak, dust. And because he prevailed, uh, he was therefore entitled to give these scented powders or these spices, the dust that was left over from that wrestling match onto his 12 sons and and blessings, 12 blessings for 12 sons or the scented powder. So it represents the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you remember the angel, when the sun starts to come up, if it is Esau's angel, he says, I have to go. The sun is breaking. Well, remember, Esau is the ancestor of Rome, Edom. Edom. And so he says, I have to go. What does that mean? At daybreak, that's when the exile ends. The night means the exile, and the daybreak is the end of the exile. It's the time of light. It's the time of the kingdom. And so Esau's angel would have no more power over Jacob at that point. Rome could not hold Jacob captive within any of its systems anymore. And so that tells you who is this coming up from the wilderness. This is going to be the 12 tribes of Israel and Esau or Rome, those systems have lost power over them. Now they are in the Mishkan. They are under the government of the Holy One, which is a beautiful picture, by the way. And you remember this encampment in the wilderness around the Mishkan, that you've got these 12 tribes and they face in four directions. And this is thought not just to represent the four living creatures whose banners they were under, but it's also thought to represent the four winds, the angels of the four winds, that as long as there was obedience in the camp, then the winds of these four angels were peaceful. They actually worked together where you wouldn't have hurricanes and monsoons and and these sorts of things. 
that you would see in a natural realm because there would be spiritual synchronization. And they say the only person who can synchronize these four angels is King Messiah now. But this was supposed to be that, you know, the, the prophetic act of the 12 tribes would be to synchronize and bring peace among the four winds. And of course, the four winds can also represent the nations of the earth. But they say that each of those four angels can also represent four beast kingdoms. And that when Israel is in harmony, when they are in obedience, when they're in the Mishkan, camped around the Mishkan in the proper order, then the beast has no power over the earth. It completely destroys the power of the beast, right? So that gives a lot of meaning to Song of Songs 3 6, where it says, Who is this coming up from the wilderness? like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the scented powders of the merchant. And so these spices that represent the 12 tribes, the blessings on the 12 tribes, you can see how in the exile that they were scattered out there, which, oh, that was a bad thing because they should have been in obedience and, you know, camped around the Mishkan, gathered together. But see what was accomplished out there is now they became little Mishkans out in the wilderness but those blessings still rest upon them. And so what's happening now, they're kind of spicy. You know, the scented powders of the merchants, they've been out in all these nations. And what have they picked up among the nations? Now they kind of got the, the spice of the nations, the best parts of the nations. That's what they're going to be able to bring back with them. And so it's, it's going to be not just a, a fragrant thing. It's going to be a very pleasant, you know, tasty, if we want to put it that way. The 12 tribes of Israel, they're tasty when you get them all together. It's, it's, a, it's a vision of Israel that you can't just see, like with the smoke and smell, with the myrrh and the frankincense, uh, but with the spices. You can almost taste how good it's going to be. Taste and see that the Lord, he is good, right? Not the, not the fruit we want to control, but producing the fruit that's willing to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, right? So that takes us back to Song of Songs 3.1. It says, on my bed, night after night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I did not find him. I must arise now and go around in the city, in the streets and the public squares. I must seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but did not find him. So she knows, the bride knows who her soul loves. Remember, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul. He is the one whom your soul loves. She knows who he is. She's seeking him, but she can't find him. She has a, a superficial relationship to him, but for some reason, she's on a sick bed, and so now she must get up and walk. She must get up and try to find him. Now watch how she finds him. The watchmen who make the rounds, these are the hasovevim, the, the circlers, in the city found me. And I said, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Hardly had I left them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let him go until I had brought him to my mother's house and into the room of her who conceived me. She has to find the watchmen the Hasovivim. And these are the people who know the appointed times. They operate in the night of exile because their ears are water tuned. Shema, hear, O Israel. They hear. They know what time it is in the exile. And she says, have you seen it? 
and then she finds him. When she finds the appointed times, she's going to find the one whom her soul loves. And then she's going to take him to the room of her who conceived me. This again, it's it's like, uh, think of the, the story of Yeshua's conception, how uh, his mother Miriam, she was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Well, the, the room of her who conceived me is thought to be in the Mishkan, because this is where the indwelling presence of Adonai was. This is where the Holy Spirit was. And so Israel was conceived as a nation. That's the, the picture there. And in the same way, Yeshua was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So if we are like him, then we should also be conceived of the Holy Spirit. So going back to that presence of Adonai, the tent of meeting, knowing the appointed times in the night of exile, and then we're prepared for the sun to rise. And this is what it says in Isaiah 21, 11, kind of skipping down from where we started today. The pronouncement concerning Edom, one keeps calling to me from Seir. Edom is Rome. Seir is Rome. It's the red one, the red beast that's now down into the, it's the feet of Rome are standing up on the earth. It's mixed iron and clay. So we're in the feet part of the prophecy. And so the, the iron of Edom, it's calling out, Seir, calling out, watchmen, how far gone is the night? Watchmen, how far gone is the night? The watchman says, morning comes, uh-oh, but also night. So we can see that the this first exile of Babylon, the, the fatal head wound of Babylon, it brought an end to the first exile. But the beast really didn't die. It was simply replaced by a new kingdom, Medo-Persia. And then it didn't really die. It was replaced by Greece. And it didn't really die. It was replaced by Rome. And then Rome really didn't die. Its systems went out into the world in this second exile, the exile of Rome. Watchmen, how far gone is the night? When will the exile of Babylon end? Watchmen, how far gone is the night? When will the exile of Rome end? But you have to go to the watchman. You have to know the one who knows the appointed times, who knows how to function in the exile of the night. The watchman says, morning comes, the end of an exile comes, but also the night. In other words, there will be an end to the Babylonian exile, but there will be another night. There will be another night, which is the night of Rome, which we're still in. It's lifting. It feels as though it's lifting that we're entering into a twilight, that the, the day is almost ready to break, but that's that second night of exile. These are the feet of the head. So you get the head of Babylon, but the final, you know, you can see Rome on its last legs, the iron legs, and then it goes into the feet, the clay and the iron feet. And so that tells you that there's a mingling. This is what happens at twilight. You get the mingling of light and darkness so that you know the sun is just ready to come up and end the exile. So he says morning comes, but also night. But if you would inquire, inquire, see all these doubles, inquire about the end of the exile from Babylon. And we should continue to inquire about the end of the Roman exile. He says, come back again. See how it, it, the implication here in Isaiah 21, because it's in these doubles, it's in these couplets. He's telling us, I mean, could there be another exile? Sure. Nothing's, you know, <laughs> nothing's out of the question because we do see prophecy through a glass darkly at this point. 
But the pattern we have right here is when this Roman exile is over completely, it's over. Because I think Yeshua is going to come back again. Just a little kiss on the cheek, come back again. Because, and I'll stop sharing with you at this point, because I'll just tell you about this. It said that, where is King Messiah today in Jewish tradition? They say something interesting in the Midrash. They say that King Messiah today, as we await the end of the exile, that he's sitting at the gates of Rome. All right, now don't take it literally, but they're, they're, it's a teaching message. They say he's at the gates of Rome. And what he's doing, all the sick people are there at the gates of Rome. And you know the prophecies about how the Messiah is going to bear our griefs and our sicknesses. He's going to take on our wounds. And so all the sick people are there. And it says the rest of the sick people, they take off all their bandages at one time, treat their wounds, and then put them all back on at the same time. Well, they say King Messiah is sitting there helping them. But when King Messiah bandages, he will just take off one bandage at a time and then put it back on. And then he'll take off another bandage and put it back on. Why is he doing that? Speed. Because he's saying, who knows when the father is going to command me to go rescue Israel. And I must be ready to go at a moment's notice. And so the just taking off one bandage at a time, the idea is that um, you don't have to take the time to put all the bandages back on somebody, that he's ready to go at a moment's notice from the gates of Rome, that it's at the gates of Rome, the, the judgment of Rome, where it's making us sick. And remember, gates represent judgment in scripture. So part of not every sickness and sorrow is because of judgment. Sometimes it's gravity, right? We just live in a fallen world. That's all it is. But see how we assimilate into those Roman systems that can make us sick. You know, I think it was even Paul who talked about there's some weak and sick among you. and Some of you are even dying because of the sin you're engaging in. And so the, the temptation, again, with the leopard spots being in Rome, is that uh, we will justify when we gravitate, gravitate toward and we're fascinated by those systems, and we don't discern that they're making us sick, they're wounding us, that we're being deceived by them, or we're letting our fascination with what they have to offer make us sick. And again, how do you discern the system? Does it lead you to transgress the word or not? If it's not leading you to transgress the word, then you're fine. But if it is leading you to transgress the word and to blur the edges right there, then you might want to rethink and withdraw from that system, that organization, that team, that partnership, so that you're not agreeing with that sin. Now, at some point, we have to be practical and say we'd have to come completely out of the world to break every you know, partnership or connection with Babylon in its feet, Rome. How do we get out of the world? Because it seems like everywhere we turn, we've got especially huge corporations now, which have become political. They're not providing goods and services. They're funding politics. And so you say, well, I don't want to support this corporation because they're funding this, this, and this that I don't like. Well, I can withdraw and I can buy from here. Well, see, at this point, they have edged out so much competition. It's diminishing what you can do in this world if you try to withdraw from every single corporation that's doing something wrong. They probably all are. <laughs> you know, if they're big, they're invested in everything. 
And it's it's hard to find everything you need down at the corner store anymore. So you're you're going to have to exercise some discernment in that area. What can you in good conscience support with your dollars? And at what point do you say, I can't live in the world if I pull my support from everything? I, I would even cease to be an influence. I would cease to be a light in the world if I just hid it under a basket, right? And so I can't tell you where those lines are. You have to draw them for yourselves. And as you work it out with the Holy Spirit, I know you're going to make good decisions, right? You can come out of the sins of Babylon, but until the appointed time, we're going to have some bandages. (laughs) We are in the Band-Aid kingdom, right? (laughs) We're at the gates of Rome awaiting King Messiah to come rescue us and bring us up from the wilderness. But don't be discouraged when it feels like you can't turn anywhere without being under the influence of wickedness. That's the deception. It's not alive. There's no life in it. It is not alive. It's not, if it does a sign or a wonder, don't be impressed. It's fatal. Head wound really was fatal. It's already dead. It's just pretending. It's deceiving you into thinking it's alive, just the way that the fruit, you know, the serpent deceived them into thinking it would be okay to eat that. Well, the power of the beast is in its deception where you're looking at it and you're scared of all the things you think it can do to you. It can't do anything to you that your father in heaven does not allow. You are his. If the Ethiopian can't change its skin and the leopard can't change its spot, then you cannot change who you are in Messiah Yeshua. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.